they respond. They respond in sackcloth and ashes. They repent. And then when God saw their actions and how they turned from their evil ways, he relents from doing the disaster he had threatened to do, and he doesn't do it. And, and in this, Nineveh is at least temporarily restored. They're forgiven by God, and they find his mercy and grace as they turn to him. Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Today I have Josh Huber with me and Aaron Downs. It's good to be here. Josh recently preached through a sermon series on the book of Jonah. In my mind, Jonah is probably one of the most famous minor prophets, Mm -hmm. mostly just because of the giant fish (laughs) and its relation to children's Sunday school curriculum. Mm -hmm. But many prophets serve as models of God's righteousness, but... Jonah isn't one of them. Why did you decide to preach on Jonah? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, AJ. Um, as I was contemplating with Aaron the the preaching schedule for the year, uh, we we do our best to alternate between New Testament, Old Testament book, as we try to give a holistic understanding of the Word of God to the people at our church. And uh, so it fell on me to do an Old Testament book, as I just got done with Mark. Uh, so that's why the Old Testament, but why Jonah? And uh, I think there were a lot of different options that we could have gone to, but I think that in Jonah, it, it would really touch on themes that I think would be helpful for our church, even as we, as we move to a new location, as we come here to more of the central of, of Burnsville. And as we know, Jonah touches on the heart of God towards all people and all nations, his mercy and his grace that he desires to share with, with people all around. And so I think that knowing that this was a major theme in Jonah and our own tendency not to model the likeness of God to others, it was important for us to to really focus on the heart of God and his love and his care for all people, his desire to see them restored and and redeemed, and not to simply um, do the holy huddle where we hoard God's mercy and grace to ourselves and and not share it with others, even as, you know, Jonah, as, as we go through it, he, he does exactly that. He doesn't want to share God's mercy, love, and grace with others. So I think as we thought through Jonah and the major themes there, it would be a good starting point for our church to, to evaluate our own hearts. Do we have God's heart for others, for his creation, to see them redeemed and restored as he does? Or are we more really like, like Jonah, hoarding it to ourselves? Josh, what goes into preparing a sermon series like this? <laughs> what goes into a sermon series preparation? Much prayer, of course. I mean, I think there's a lot of time to pray about what it is that God wants you to bring out from the text, uh, so I can't underplay that at all, a lot of praying through the text. Uh, there's so much there, as you know, and uh, part of it is studying and reading the text, reading different translations to get an idea of you know, perhaps where the, the debated terms are or where commentators don't agree on interpretation. And, and so a lot of reading of the text and trying to capture repeated words or ideas in the book of Jonah. So just reading the whole thing all together uh, to gain a better understanding and grasp as you prepare to preach through a sermon series like Jonah. And then, of course, with that, trying to capture the, the contrasts that occur within the story itself. And so, for instance, like Jonah and the Gentiles, as you go through it, you see the contrast between how Jonah responds to the storm versus how the Gentiles respond to the storm, and how Jonah responds to God's mercy and grace versus how 
the Ninevites do. So looking for a lot of these themes as you read it over and over again. And then, of course, as you prepare, you're asking lots of questions about the text. You know, what am I to learn about God from this book? What, what is it teaching me about his character, his likeness? Uh, what am I learning about man and his tendencies? What am I learning about Jesus as I prepare to share this word with the church? And so really, as you prepare, you're asking a lot of questions of the text, making sure you understand what it teaches you about God, man, Jesus, and of course, uh, making sure you, you get the flow of what's taking place in the story itself. And then last but not least, reading commentaries, lots of them of people who are very knowledgeable on the subject matter and gaining a better idea of the historical context so you can gain a understanding of the setting and what's taking place. Aaron, what about what about you? <laughs> you know, I would just add that one of the things I like that we do at mm-hmm. our church is we rotate who is preaching. It's great for people in our church because then they can hear from different people who have different styles of mm-hmm. speaking and ways of thinking and expressing things. But then it also helps us. We help each other mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. while you're preaching, I'm able to start prepping for the next sermon series that I'm going to do and vice versa. We try to help people maybe see behind the curtain a little bit of what happens in sermon preparation. That's actually an important part of it. We're able to work on sermon prep while someone else is preaching because there's Mm -hmm. not that pressure of having to have a prepared sermon by the end of the week. So Aaron preached for me uh, while I was getting ready during my sabbatical and took care of a lot of the heavy lifting for me so I could adequately prepare. And I don't, I don't think we can give more attention to that because it helps a ton for those who are getting ready. Yeah. And while you were preaching Jonah, I was preparing this sermon series on Jesus the Messiah mm-hmm. and doing all of the background study for the book of Esther, which will be the next sermon series. Mm-hmm. So whenever we talk to people about sermon prep, I think that can kind of get lost Um, There's more than the weekly prep, but there's actually a system in place that helps us both. Before we walk through the book of Jonah, I want to talk about the genre of the book. Is it an allegory, a parable, (laughs) historical? Josh, can you comment on that? Sure. Yeah, as you read different commentaries, they they might take different approaches, whether it's a parable or allegory. I think it's historical. I think it makes sense to take it that way. Jesus talks about as if it actually happened. Um, as it was a real event, he points to the sign of Jonah as a sign of his resurrection, which I don't think was, you know, it's not fiction, it actually happened. So I think it would take away from that some if we were just to allegorize it or make it a parable of some sort, though there are some out there that, that do take it that way. I am always intrigued by this question, and it's one that I'm wrestling with as I prep the book of Esther, but mm. I think probably we should recognize that conservative Christians might differ on this, and we might understand even what genre is somewhat differently. But I would want to just draw a distinction between looking at this book as totally fiction and reading it like historical fiction. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. But I think there is within the realm of conservative evangelical thinking a way of looking at some of these Old Testament texts as um, maybe we, we might describe it as fictionalized history where there are poetic licenses being taken, we might say, or features that are being constructed in a particular way to help structure the story or make a point. And it would really fit well within the ancient expectations of writing. So when when we go through the book, we'll notice Jonah, great fish, three days and three nights. And then mm-hmm. the next chapter, Jonah, great city, three days walk. And so I think we want to 
read the story not impressing our historical standards on it or expectations, but recognizing that the writer can, in what we might call embellishing something, actually mm-hmm. just participate in literary artistry. And I think you'd right. agree with that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Josh, why don't you walk us through the book of Jonah, starting with chapter one? As we just begin with chapter one here, looking at the main idea. I mean, I think one of the major themes that hits you over and over in each and every chapter of the book is, like we've been saying, God's heart of mercy and grace to all people. And and it takes the form of a loving warning here in chapter one as God calls Jonah to really give a a loving warning to, to Nineveh so that they might be saved and restored. And he doesn't want to see Nineveh crushed. And so he desires that Jonah goes to them, preaches against them, so that they might repent of their sins and, and be restored, redeemed, and forgiven. God wants to show his mercy to them. And, and as we know, Jonah receives this message from God, and he does the exact opposite. He, he flees the, all the way west. And then if it's east, he goes directly west and completely disobeys God at this point. And so where, where Jonah was to give God's loving message of, of warning to the Ninevites, we, we begin to see kind of a turning point here at the beginning to now God's merciful warning, not directed to Nineveh anymore, but to Jonah. And so it goes from, from Nineveh now to Jonah. Why does Jonah flee? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think you really get that answer near the end, chapter 4, where Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to be saved. He doesn't want God's mercy to go to them. I, I, I fled you, Lord, because I knew you were a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he, knowing this about God, he knew that he would save Nineveh if Nineveh repented in turn, and he didn't want that at all. And I think that's the answer Jonah gives to us. That's why I fled, Lord. I did that because I didn't want them saved. These are terrible people. They don't deserve your mercy and grace. So I, I think that's why he fled at the beginning, and he disobeys God blatantly. And really, in disobeying God blatantly, he becomes like the Ninevites. He, he, he's a sinner. He's a rebellious sinner, just like deserving of God's wrath. And now the story turns really towards God now showing his mercy to Jonah. And Jonah has to begin to understand that mercy to himself. Um, So for the rest of the chapter here of one, I think we see God's mercy directed to Jonah of this impending disaster, just as he was telling, you know, Nineveh, hey, you're going to be destroyed unless, you know, you repent or turn or whatever the message was. So it happens here. He's like, so here comes this storm. He sends to Jonah. You're going to be completely shipwrecked if you don't turn back to me. And yet, you know, as we know, Jonah doesn't get this message, does he? He's sleeping at the bottom of the ship. And then there's the irony because the Gentiles who don't know God get the message. They're, they're crying out to their gods. They're trying to escape this, this disaster. God won't let Jonah sleep through this warning. So he sends the captain to wake him up. And the captain, what does he tell him to do? Cry out to your God. Here's the message of warning again. Cry out to your God so, so that we might be spared. And again, Jonah just ignores this merciful warning from God. And so then finally there's the casting of the lots, and it points out Jonah as the culprit. And here, and only here, does Jonah finally respond, but not by crying out to God and turning to him. Instead, he opts really for death wish, I think. He says, I'm not, I'm not going to turn. I know what you're trying to do, God. I know you want me to repent and turn. I'm not going to. <laughs> I want to be thrown into the, the sea rather than obey you and be destroyed because that's, that's how much I hate the Ninevites. I think that's a little bit of what's going on there. 
the sailors don't want to throw them overboard, but they feel like they don't have any options, so they throw them overboard. And so chapter 1 concludes with, with this, the impression that those who turn to the living God, like the Gentile sailors do, are, are redeemed and, and forgiven, and those who don't are judged and destroyed. As we know, the story doesn't end there, and God's mercy extends even beyond our own hardness of heart that leads to destruction. And so God, it, it, the chapter ends with God sending this fish in his mercy to save Jonah despite his own rebelliousness and, and failure to turn. Josh, what's the significance of Jonah's identification of the Lord, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land when he's talking to the sailors? I fear the Lord God, Yahweh, who made the dry land and the seas. And I, the significance is he acknowledges that he serves Yahweh, the one true God, overall. They ask him, you know, which God is that we offended? And he's telling them, I'm a Hebrew, and because of that, this is the God that's offended. And it's not nothing they've really done. It's what he's done. So he's just telling them that I serve this God, and I fear him. Well, our text says worship, because I think it's trying to capture the idea that he doesn't really fear God in the reverential sense. He just says, I serve him. And right now he's not. Yeah. It, wouldn't it be terrifying if you believed in mm-hmm. different gods who had authority over different aspects of the world and creation to be crying out to your gods who maybe aren't <laughs> the god of the sea that's trying to right. crush you? And you hear from this guy saying, I'm worshiping the god who can actually control this thing. Right. Um, right. That I would be so mad at Jonah yeah. in those moments. Yeah, yeah. What were you thinking, man? Like you, you're trying to flee the God who made the sea. Like there's got to be something mentally wrong with you to to try to do that. It makes no sense at all. I think it also hints at a theme where God is portrayed as the one who is in control of creation, and we see it here with the storm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. God appoints the fish to swallow Jonah. Right. He raises up a plant. Mm-hmm at the end of the book, and right. a worm to destroy yep. the plant. He directs the way that the dice land, and he causes the storm to come about, as you already mentioned. So, yeah, absolutely. His sovereignty is uh, clear throughout the entirety of the story here. Moving on, as we go over to chapter 2, Jonah is is finally praying from the belly of the fish after three days and three nights, as we ended in chapter 1. And it, it's... It's interesting to know it took three days and three nights for Jonah to to pray these words. Like I, I'm guessing that there was acid in the belly of the fish. You can only imagine the stench. But it's only after all of this that he finally begins to repent and, and turn back to God. And in this chapter, we we begin to see his his cries to God. What happened to him while he was at the ocean? When he was drowning? And after going through all of this, he finally concludes that. I was actually wrong. God's judgment and his discipline is worse than living for him and turning to him. And so it's it's through this means of grace, really, that Jonah's heart is finally turned back to God. He turns towards his holy temple, his presence once more. And, and it's the turning point for Jonah, who would not repent, who would not return to God, to now where he finally is as a result of the merciful discipline of God. And again, this is the most gracious thing God could have done for Jonah. He's sparing not just his his life, but his soul from eternal destruction that Jonah otherwise would have experienced after death. And so through this sparing of his life, not only is his physical life saved, but his soul is eternally, hopefully, saved as he turns to God here in the belly of the fish. And so we read of his salvation, of his praise, and of his thanks to God. And as you conclude chapter 2, you really 
find Jonah doing exactly what the the sailors did at the end of chapter one. Uh, at the end of chapter one, the sailors, you know, they offer up vows and sacrifices to Yahweh. And then at the end of chapter two, Jonah's basically finally saying the same thing. You know, I'm going to fulfill what I vowed to God, and I'm going to offer sacrifices to you too. And so Jonah, by the end of chapter two, is is doing what the Gentile sailors did just a chapter prior. And, and in this, God is drawing Jonah back to himself and teaching him his mercy and his grace so that now he, Lord willing, would be a, merciful, a vessel of mercy and grace now to the Ninevites, having experienced that. Yeah, this is a little bit hard, maybe because we're importing a little bit of systematic categories or even further developed New Testament <laughs> concepts backwards. But are you saying that Jonah was not one of God's people and this is when he was converted? Or are you saying that Jonah just repented and, and returned to the Lord mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as he had been before? Mm-hmm. Um, we know he was a prophet already. It seems mm-hmm, like he was... Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? All of God's people as in Israel. I mean, they are God's people, but those who were not following God, not worshiping, I mean, they were cut off and they were not his people. So I think we can say that those who serve God, return to him, are his people, and those that forsake him are not. I think that's how scripture talks about it. So Jonah going down into the belly of the fish was kind of like an exile, like mm-hmm, an individual right. exile that parallels with Israel's exile. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he became a person who was no, not God's people. Mm-hmm. And through his repentance, he became God, someone called God's person. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other thing I would want to point out that might be helpful for some listeners is when we get to a place like this, this is probably a situation where if you're inclined to disbelieve that Jonah was literally in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. You need to suspend your disbelief so you can get what the narrative is trying to communicate mm-hmm. and not become distracted by the particulars of, of that historical inquiry. Not that that's right. not valid or that you shouldn't do it, but I think sometimes people could read this story and walk away mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. reading chapter one into the first verse of chapter two and say, right. well, that's not possible, so I'm done reading this, mm-hmm. where instead, regardless of how you sort through that, you ought to suspend your disbelief to see what the narrative is teaching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get caught up with you know the astoundment of being inside a fish rather than what's taking place inside of Jonah's heart, and that's mm-hmm. where the author's really trying to direct you. The fish is not all important. It's what's happening inside Jonah's heart, that is, I think. Yeah, and I appreciated that you didn't have a long segment on this when you were preaching through this. In fact, I don't think you even mentioned it. No, I don't think so. Um, And I I think that's helpful because even for someone who might say, I have trouble believing that that happened historically in that way, Mm -hmm. I think even that person can say, well, I read other books and talk about characters and events as if they actually happened in that there's truth to be learned from that that narrative. So I would just want to encourage anyone who would maybe become so sidetracked with that that they're, they'd miss what's going on, mm-hmm. don't. Suspend that disbelief and read the story. Right. 
All right, Josh, you've just walked us through chapter two, mm-hmm. and we've seen Jonah go from being in the belly of the fish to becoming repentant to being vomited out onto the dry land. Mm-hmm. And he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Right. And in the New Testament, when the religious leaders were looking for a sign of God's activity or Jesus's messiahship, he told them, mm-hmm. you'll receive no sign except for the sign of Jonah. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how does that relate to this event? I think in that, Jesus is saying, Jonah, the sign of Jonah, all that took place there really points to me. And I think we we really see a ton of parallels, especially beginning with um, Jesus calming the storm when he's on the boat, Sea of Galilee, raging storm comes upon him, and the disciples were saying, we're going to drown, we're going to die. And I think there's a lot of parallels we see between that storm, Jesus sleeping on the boat, this boat of course, in Jonah, uh, the sailors crying out, we're going to die, and then Jonah's sleeping. I think there's parallels there, except, uh, of course, the parallels are quite drastic in that, you know, Jonah is is sleeping out of indifference, not caring about God's warning. Jesus is sleeping because he, he, he trusts God fully and completely, and he's in control of the situation. And, and where Jonah's going to be thrown overboard to calm the, the storm, Jesus speaks a mere two words, and he calms the storm right on the spot. And so everything that, that Jonah is doing and happening to him, Jesus is kind of doing again in a better and fuller way um, as the perfect prophet that Jonah never was. And even as Jonah is on a boat fleeing God's presence, fleeing the Gentiles he's supposed to be ministering to, we see Jesus going towards uh, the demoniac, the guy who has thousands of evil spirits, the Gentile, to minister to him and to free him from captivity to sins and, and demons. And so I think that all of this points towards Jesus as a greater Jonah, the one who is perfect. And you can continue the parallel as he's thrown overboard into the the wrath of God, so to speak, and then raised again three days later, Mm -hmm. and that happening to Jesus too, as he suffers, not for his own sins like Jonah, but for our sins, and then being raised three days um, and three nights later in glory, not in the vomit of fish. (laughs) Yeah, and that's probably the strongest link. I think that's sometimes explicitly talked about is the three days and the three nights. Mm -hmm. But then I think it's also interesting when Jesus is talking to Peter in Matthew 16 about this, he's just told the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they'll see no signs except the sign of Jonah. Mm -hmm. And then when Peter confesses Jesus's Messiahship, son of the living God, Mm -hmm. Jesus calls him Simon, son of Jonah. Mm -hmm. Even though I don't think Jonah is Simon Peter's father. So it's almost like he's he's seen the sign of Jonah, mm-hmm. he's gotten it, and now Peter is carrying on the confession of Jonah, mm-hmm. just where Jonah's life and, and experience pointed forward to Jesus. Now Peter's interpreting it rightly and testifying correctly. Jonah being vomited up on the shore in, mm-hmm. in Nineveh, right. does that also validate the message that he comes to bring to this, this yeah. miraculous yeah. event? I read some commentators, and they said that if, if he was truly in the fish three days, three nights, the acid would have turned him like an incredibly pale, white, ghostly-looking figure so that when he appeared, the Ninevites might have been shocked by his appearance. Like, who is this guy? He must be a spirit from God. And I think that there's some level of validity to that, considering that, that they don't kill him, they don't try to arrest him, they they listen to him, they take him seriously, and perhaps that validated his message further. And no doubt, the scars that he bore, I mean, it had to be a reminder to him of his own rebellion and what it brought about on himself. And so you would think that not only would it validate his mission, but it should remind him of God's mercy and grace to himself and what God did for him. 
So chapter 3, Jonah's recommissioned by the Lord. Yeah, chapter 3, we come back to really a reiteration of chapter 1. There's a lot of repeated elements here as we come to chapter 3. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah once more, and as it comes to Jonah, he gets up, and he goes to Nineveh this time. He doesn't, he doesn't run away. He, he's, he seemed to have learned from his mistakes. And so he at once goes to Nineveh, an extremely great city to God. And a lot of commentators have made the point that it, it's telling us over and over again in this book that Nineveh was important to God. God cared about the city despite its evil, and he desired to redeem and, and restore it. And so Jonah goes to this great city, and he just begins to proclaim his message. You know, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned or demolished. And, you know, really reminiscing Sodom and Gomorrah that was overturned in this way and destroyed. And so this is what he says to Nineveh, and there may have been more that he said, no doubt, as a result of his message to these evil, wicked people who are incredibly violent. We just simply read that they respond by believing God. They believe God just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. I think we're supposed to kind of start seeing some connections here. And as they believe God, it's, it's accompanied by action. They proclaim a fast. They dress in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. It's not just the losers who are, are getting this in and responding. It's all of them, the greatest of the great. And, and they're, they're humbling themselves before God by fasting and wearing this garment of mourning, sackcloth. And so they begin to humble themselves before God as they hear about their impending destruction. And then, of course, the word reaches the king of Nineveh. And, and I think we're expecting the king to kind of kill Jonah at this point. He's, he's causing turmoil in his city, right? If this was the king of Israel, I mean, you're expecting the prophet to still not accept the prophet and just to jail them and put them away. But here, shockingly, we read he gets up off his throne, he takes off his royal robe, and he joins them in sackcloth and ashes. He humbles himself before God, and and then he takes it a step further. He issues a decree, right? He issues a decree that everyone else should should fast, including the animals, right? The animals are are included in this fast along with sackcloth. Like, he's going to the utmost extreme, anything in his power to show God that they were were sorry, that they were repentant. He's trying to do. He issues this decree with his nobles, and they must all turn from their evil ways. And he says, who knows, God may turn and relent, and we might not perish. And so as a result of hearing God's powerful word, they respond. They respond in sackcloth and ashes, they repent, and then when God saw their actions and how they turned from their evil ways, he relents from doing the disaster he had threatened to do, and he doesn't do it. And, and in this, Nineveh is at least temporarily restored. They're forgiven by God, and they find his mercy and grace as they turn to him. I would want to point out how different Nineveh's response is than Israel's response sometimes was when they heard a word of judgment from the Lord. So I don't know about the timing of all these things, but at least from our perspective, as we read through the Old Testament, we've already read in Isaiah 22, when the word of the Lord came against Jerusalem, that called for weeping, for wailing, for shaven heads, and for the wearing of sackcloth. They didn't do that. They did the opposite. It Mm, says, but look, mm -hmm. joy and gladness, butchering of cattle, slaughtering of sheep and goats, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Mm. People saying, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And then that iniquity goes up before the Lord and 
they're wiped out, right? Yeah. So Nineveh does the exact opposite. And yeah. it's hard to know when Jonah was written, who was reading this, what events were going on in Israel's life. But I think there's definitely a comparison between these in- individuals who n- knew nothing of God's mercy, mm-hmm. who didn't know that God was steadfast in love, abounding in mercy, ready to turn away his hand, that these individuals were the people who repented. Mm -hmm. Um, Israel often did not. And so there's probably a lesson in there for us as well. Chapter four, the spotlight of the story turns from the Ninevites who repent of their sin, Mm -hmm. and it's now shine on Jonah and his Mm -hmm. response. He's displeased. He's not happy. He's angry. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, chapters 1 and 3 really focus on Jonah and the Gentiles, and then chapters 2 and 4 really focus on Jonah and God and the dialogue there. And yeah, Jonah's infuriated. He can't believe that God is going to spare these guys. And then this is where, again, we see his heart revealed from the beginning. We get that insider information, finally, of what took place near the beginning, right? I mean, this is why I fled, right? I fled to Tarshish because I knew you were gracious and compassionate. I didn't want you to show mercy to these guys, and this is exactly what you did. And I obeyed you, and this is how you're going to treat me and, and my people. You're going to actually go ahead and forgive these enemies of Israel. You know what they've done. They've done terrible and awful things. You can fill it in, but these guys were brutal. He's just infuriated with God. He can't see how he can be just and sparing these, these wicked people. And we see him flee again. He goes east. Yes. What, what's the significance yeah. of that? Yeah, as we continue to, to read in the scriptures, going east is normally a sign of some level of, of rebellion or sin. And I think we really see that as Adam and Eve are, are cast out east of the garden. And then again with Cain, as he departs east and establishes his own city, and, and then I think again here with Jonah, as he goes east and um, really of just signifying his, his heart condition towards, towards God, and he builds himself a shelter there, and he sits east of the city just hoping God would change his mind and, and destroy this, this city. And he does that by, again, trying to barter with his life. You know, God, destroy the city or kill me. I mean, that's basically his whole attitude here. And, and so he goes east and, and he waits. And he sounds exactly like Israel sounds sometimes in the wilderness, mm-hmm. right? When they mm-hmm. were really hungry, they were <laughs> saying, it would have been better for us to have died right. in Egypt with the Egyptians instead of appealing to the Lord and trusting him to provide for them and to experience his compassion and mercy. They, they say some of the same things. I right. think that's pretty right. interesting. Yeah, no, that, that's a great parallel. I mean, Jonah is an Israelite in the wilderness, basically, at this point in the desert, really, doing the same thing that Israel did back in the wilderness. So, yeah, that, that's a great catch there. Despite Jonah's indignant behavior towards God and his, his really back-talking to him, you don't know what you're doing, the arrogance, the pride that's coming off of his mouth, um, God's still merciful to him, and he's not done trying to teach this hard-hearted prophet, is he? And, and so he tries to give him a, a visual illustration to help drive the point home. And so he does this by appointing a plant and it provides shade for him to rescue him from his trouble, the, the beating sun. And of course, Jonah's greatly pleased with the plant. And then the next day, God takes it away by, by means of a worm. It attacks the plant and it, and it withers. And then as the sun was rising, you know, God appoints a scorching east wind and it beats down on his head and he almost faints and he wishes to die again. And so he says, it's better for me to die than to live. 
And so then God asked him again, you know, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah, about this plant? And then he reiterates again, yes, it's, it's right. He replied, I'm angry enough to die. God gives Jonah really the lesson here. You know, you are wishing what I just did to you in this very, very small way upon your enemies, the Ninevites. You want me to revoke the mercy. My mercy, I gave you this plant, and then I took it away. And you hate me for doing that. You're angry. You're so angry, you wish you could die. And yet that's exactly what you want me to do, Jonah, to Nineveh. You want me to revoke the mercy I've shown them. And that should cause me to be angry, you know? Like, that. how can you be so double-minded in this way? You're, you're picking and choosing the mercy and grace, and you can't do that. And more than that, you, you didn't even create these people or the plant, and yet you have mercy upon it. Don't I have the right to show extravagant mercy on these people who are made in my own image, who don't know their left from their right, and, and the animals there? And he's questioning questioning Jonah, like, do you understand how much I care and I love my creation? What does that phrase, these Mm -hmm. people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left mean? And what's being communicated about this people with that language? So some commentators have suggested it's in reference to the children that are there, but I think a better understanding is that morally speak, they don't know right from wrong. They don't have the divine revelation from God that the Israelites had. And so morally speaking, they don't know their left hand from the right. And I think that makes the most sense. Like God is merciful to these people who don't know better. They don't know better per se, like the Israelites do. So is the point to kind of contrast them with Jonah, who not only had the law as the rest of the Israelites did, but was a prophet and who had the direct word from the Lord. He knew exactly what was right and wrong. Is that sort of the point? I think there's a contrast between the two. Yeah. And then what do you make of that final sentence? I don't know what it's like in the Hebrew, if this is the final word or not, but God's care for the many animals. Yeah. How does that factor into this story? I think it just demonstrates once more God's heart for all of his creation. Humans, for sure, but then also his animals. He cares about all of his creation. He desires to see it redeemed and restored. And I think this goes back to I mean, even Noah and the ark and where the animals were spared there too. I think this has kind of been God's heart to see all of his creation restored from the beginning, and including him in that, I think, is appropriate, especially as the animals participated in really kind of the repentance of, of Nineveh. They were covered in sackcloth and ashes, too. The people of Nineveh are warned that the judgment of God is coming. The city will be demolished in 40 days. They respond with faith and repentance. Right. And God relents the disaster. So there's a prophecy about the destruction of them, the people, the animals in their place, but God relents that destruction. Does that guide the way that we read New Testament prophecies of destruction, whether it's in Matthew or Revelation? Does the prophecy of destruction Mm, indicate mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. it will not be relented? For example, anyone hearing this would have understood this is what the future is. This is our personal eschatology. Predictive prophecy. Yeah, yeah. this has been predicted by the prophet of the Lord. We believe it, and it's going to happen, but mm-hmm. we repent, and then God relented that disaster. Sure, sure. So when we read texts, whether it's in Second Peter or Revelation or Matthew, about the destruction of the whole world and everything in it, mm-hmm. do we have grounds to say that perhaps people re- will repent and God will be merciful and re- relent from the prophecy to destroy the whole earth, even though it's a prophet of the Lord, we might say, who's decreed it? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Jeremiah eighteen seven eight, which tells us clearly, right, that if any time God says, I'm going to pluck up this, this country, this nation, destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of that disaster that I intended to do to it. So I think God says, yeah, I'm going to do this if you don't churn, but if you do churn, there's also this promise here. I think that's exactly what he does here. He, he fulfills what he said in Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8, according to, to his word through prophet uh, Jeremiah. That's interesting to me that these individuals would have believed this is the future and God relented. And maybe that helps us understand the great mercy that they experienced. If we can say, let's put ourselves in this situation where we can read of prophecies that depict the destruction of the whole earth and imagine a world where people throw themselves at God's mercy and he relents. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think as hard as it might be for us to imagine that, that's what they experienced. Josh, as you've wrapped up Jonah for us, you've ended by drawing our attention to the word of the Lord to Jonah, Mm -hmm. really a word of rebuke. And I think all of us, when we heard Ben read the whole book Mm -hmm. on that first day, when the story ended, it felt like he he stopped reading early. He needs to turn the page and Mm -hmm. keep going. Mm -hmm. Help us understand that. How come we don't Mm -hmm. hear anything from Jonah? Yeah, I think it's it's meant to be an open-ended question that that draws you into the story. I mean, this is how Jonah ended. This is God's word to him. How is he going to respond? But really, how are you as the reader going to respond? And it's open-ended to draw us, I think, into the story and to be confronted with the question ourselves. Do we care about God's creation as much as he does? Or are we more like Jonah, caring about things that only bring us comfort, these tr- this trivial little plant, rather than the souls of people who are at stake for all eternity. What is our priority? Is it more like Jonas, or do we share the heart of God? And I think leaving it on a cliffhanger like that, without telling us how Jonah responds, leaves us to question our own hearts all the more. I mean, if we were told how Jonah responded, maybe we would think less about the question that it ends, because it ends on a question that I think we're meant to really ponder, consider for ourselves because we're not meant to be thinking about how Jonah responded, but we're supposed to be thinking, how am I, as a reader, going to respond as I see God's heart revealed towards all of creation, his immense love, mercy, and grace? Am I going to be more like him and model his likeness as a recipient of that mercy and grace, or am I going to continue to harden my heart and be more like Jonah? Yeah, I think when we read Old Testament narratives like this that end with the cliffhanger, it leaves you wanting to fill in their words. And I think an interesting exercise would be as you read through the Psalms to start identifying the Psalms that you wish you would hear Jonah saying. I remember when we went through Ruth and Naomi returned and she doesn't speak at the end of the book. There were Psalms that were coming to mind about how God is merciful and gracious to the widow and you want to hear her say these things. And I think maybe the same would be true of Jonah where I would want to plug in things like Psalm 38, where it ends with these words of, I confess my iniquity. I'm anxious because of my sin. Lord, don't abandon me. Don't be far from me. Hurry to me. Help me. Provide me salvation. I think Mm -hmm. as we start reading that in, the psalm that we want to hear him say is a psalm that we ought to begin to speak and pray on our own is is the right response to the story. Josh, you concluded the series in Jonah by preaching on Luke 15, the prodigal (laughs) sons. Yeah, I just thought that the parallels were incredibly strong, and I thought it'd be a great way to end with 
really Jesus's retelling of the story of Jonah, I think, through the two sons. I think the parallels are, are, are there all over the place with the younger son abandoning the father defiantly. I think we see that really in Jonah 1 and 2 as uh, Jonah takes what God had given him, the message of mercy and grace, and he squanders it. He flees God. He says, forget that. I'm not doing what you want with that message. And and like the prodigal son, he he, he goes his own way and reaps the destruction as a result. And when he's near the end of his life, he turns back to God. And I think we see that in the prodigal son in a, in a lot of different ways. When he reaches the end of himself, he, he turns back to the Father. He remembers his goodness to him, and he goes back to him. And then in chapters 3 and 4, I think we really see Jonah as the older brother in, in a lot of ways, and he demonstrates the self-righteous spirit that um, the older brother does, and he goes from being the prodigal son, the younger prodigal son, to now the older prodigal son. He can't believe God would show mercy and grace to others that were evil and far worse than himself, and um, that's revealed when both Jonah and the older brother don't get what they want, and then you realize their heart is far from God, just like the younger son was as well. And then, of course, at the very end, you see the parallel between the older brother. Like, how does the prodigal son's end? It ends with kind of a question to the older brother. You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to respond and enter the the joy that the father has for the restoration of the younger? Or are you just going to go off and be continuing to be bitter and angry towards me? And I, I think there's so many connections there as you, as you look at it in depth. Josh, what did you learn from preaching through this series? I'll, I'll list a few things here. How has it helped you spiritually? I think just being confronted over and over again with God's immense patience and mercy to all of us, and then just how how often we fail to emulate his likeness to others. Even with my own children, I'm like, God is so patient kind with you, and you are so impatient and not kind to your children at times. And so just thinking about God's mercy to me, his grace— and then I think also just really my, my own need to be reflecting that to others, to others around me who God cares about dearly. Like, do I truly care about my neighbors, those who do not know the Father, those whom God desires to restore? And so I think this book has challenged me to really contemplate people all around, whether at the fast food restaurant, the gas station, my next-door neighbors. Do I see them as objects of God's love and mercy? Do I see them as as God does, wanting to see them restored into a right relationship with himself. And if so, what am I doing? Am, am I sharing that mercy to them? Am I, am I going on my way to be gracious with them, to show them the love of the Father, to direct them towards himself? Or am I just kind of hoarding it to myself and acting completely indifferent to others around me? So I think that's one of the major <laughs> ways I've been challenged. And I've also been encouraged from this just Remembering that God can use the most broken of sinners for his glory, despite our, our numerous failures. I mean, Jonah's so broken, and yet God uses him to direct the sailors towards himself, and not only the sailors, but the entire city of Nineveh, despite all the sin in his life and his self-righteousness. And so I think I've been encouraged deeply by that, because I think we can all feel at times completely inadequate for the task God has given us. Like, how can I do anything for God? And then we... We were, we're rebuked, and we have to remember it. it's it's God who uses us. It's his power at work through us. It's not us. It's him. And so even as we see God's word work to bring the city to its knees, um, it's just been a, 
an incredible encouragement to me, knowing that it doesn't rest on me. It rests on God who works through weak vessels for his glory. So I think those are a couple of things that have directly impacted me and brought me both encouragement and uh, rebuke at the same time. I think similar to you, Josh, I was just feeling the reality of the need to continue to press into God's mercy, the mercy that God wants to show to others, and the mercy that God wants to show to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think learning from Jonah, he he repented and experienced God's mercy right. halfway through the story, and then he <laughs> resisted it at the end. Yeah. Nineveh yeah. is the city repented and experienced God's mercy in this book, right away. are objects of God's judgment in Nahum. Mm. Um, there's a need to persist in the mercy of God, and both for yourself and in offering that to others. So that really hit me this time through the book of Jonah. Josh, thank you for coming on the podcast. I've been really encouraged by listening to your series through Jonah. Aaron, thank you for being here as well. Happy to be here. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church. If you have not listened to Josh's sermons on Jonah, you can find them and other sermons on our website, resurrectionmn.org.